Hi, welcome to Status Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Joe Brown. Joe is the founder of Hair Seat Financial. And today we're talking about investing and finances. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hey, Joe, welcome back to the pod. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries. I thought we could start just in case anybody isn't familiar with you and your brand. Um, a little introduction about yourself, sort of what you do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, brief, full overview of the story. Um, when my wife and I got married, we had a ton of debt and made basically no income. And uh, so I figured we needed to figure out a way to get ourselves out of that hole. Um, started uh, learning about basic personal finance, uh, like getting out of debt, uh, making a budget, you know, the simple stuff and uh, really kind of fell in love. And um, I was talking to my buddy who had recently gotten a job as a stockbroker. And he told me, he's like, hey, look, if you like this stuff, you may want to consider a career in it. I can get you hired um, in a, the broker training program. And so I jumped at that opportunity. And uh, for the next uh, just about five years, I was a, uh, a you know stockbroker. Did every single thing that I could. You know, probably once, almost once a year, I kind of changed roles. Tried to tried to you know just hop around and do as many things as I could to learn as much as I could because uh, that was that was the most interesting part of it to me. I wanted to know how the economic machine worked really from the inside. Um, it eventually got to a point where I kind of started running into brick walls um, on, you know, the mechanisms of, you know, how the economy works, how money works, the um, uh, how interest rates and inflation and what the Federal Reserve does and, you know, fiscal policy, all of that. Um, and uh, uh, it, I, I then had to start basically uh, uh, finding other sources of information. So started finding books on macroeconomics and uh, studying, you know, outside of the belly of the beast and uh, kind of got introduced to Austrian economics, people like Peter Schiff, I found. And um, uh, that's when things started really to uh, click for me. And I started to put two and two together. And it ended up getting to a point where I was like, you know what, this is how I know the way that these things work now. I can't continue to do what I'm doing in good faith. And uh, so I left my job and uh, started Heresy Financial to just teach people how money works. Um, because it's my belief that if you understand how money works, then you're going to be able to um, make more of it for yourself and uh, keep more of it for yourself. And so uh, that's been the that's been the goal all along and uh, why I do what I do now. And so now my main source, my avenue for that is going to be my YouTube videos. I'm pretty active on Twitter also. Yeah, and you also have a great podcast as well, which I uh, tune into fairly frequently. And one thing I've noticed um, with your pod and with your YouTube and kind of with your brand is that you sort of have a macro tilt, but then also you have a lot of courses on sort of the micro and personal finance and stuff. So I thought I could just start, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about specifically is um, how you like to invest. Do you prefer to go with the top-down approach or do you prefer the bottom-up? Because I know that a lot of people like to say that macro is too hard to predict and this and that. And then, you know, on the other side, you say, well, if you can find the, the correct trends and maybe you could find a company within those. So I just kind of wanted to hear your take on those two different strategies for investing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's kind of both and. So that's why I do both. And I think the macro is um, is something that is more 
it's it's the the perception is that it's more complicated than it really is. So that's why most of my uh, my my public content that is free is about understanding how the machine works overall, uh, because it can be extremely uh, daunting um, to understand kind of how all of those little pieces fit together and feedback on each other. Um, I think nowadays people are a lot more interested in that as well, because you had a period of time for, you know, maybe 40 years where uh, bond prices, you know, bond interest rates were going down. We were in a, an environment for the last 40 years when uh, interest rates were declining. Um, and that's a, that's a multi-decade super cycle that bottomed in 2021. You can't go below zero rates. And uh, most investors alive today have never lived through, uh, especially invested through, uh, an environment where we're going to have multi-decade super cycle of the opposite, where interest rates are rising. Um, But that's what preceded the last cycle of when they were falling. And so everything that people talk about, about the stock market and, you know, the the reliable uh, returns of, you know, the 8% per year from the stock market and uh, your 401k and uh, what you do with debt, uh, what you do with your savings. That's all based on data that is post-1980. Very little of those studies, very few of those studies go back prior to that. Um, If you talk to somebody in the 70s or the 80s, Nobody said it was common knowledge to invest in the S&P 500. That was not something that was uh, viewed as like, you know, pillar number one of personal finance. Um, Stocks were not looked at as a normal, common, safe investment. Um, And so there are many things that we look at through such a narrow scope of history. um, And if you take a broader look at how the economy looks over, how it works overall together, then you start to be able to put these pieces together. Um, uh, and, and be able to do things that are more safe for the long run and then ultimately have have better returns for the long run. You don't get bit in the butt by you know inflation or interest rates moving the in a different way than you expected. having the you know a 60 40 portfolio that was built for the 90s when it's you know uh, it, it, that's not going to work that way going forward. Um, and then uh, on the uh, kind of the, the the paid side where I try and funnel people into, I have my courses. Uh, that's more tactical, like nitty gritty. Like okay, now that I understand, uh, you know, that we're in a multi-decade inflationary environment where inflation is going to be high. There will be brief periods where it's lower, but it's going to be higher for the long term. Interest rates are going to be moving higher. We're going to have sovereign debt crisis crises all around the world. The biggest threat that our country faces is the national debt. That um, with the right rising interest rates, that'll be solved one of two ways: outright default or technical default um, uh, through uh, uh, through inflating away the value of that debt. Um, and so, uh, when you understand all these pieces, then the questions come into play: like, okay, then what do I actually do about this? Um, and uh, and those are the things that are actually, you know, uh, ironically, kind of difficult to answer in like a um, in a quick. Uh, public facing manner, like you can't just do a 12 minute YouTube video on uh, portfolio allocation. I mean, you can, but it just wouldn't be, it wouldn't be uh, good enough for people to walk away with. This is exactly the steps that I need to take uh, and have all my, 
uh, answers my uh, questions answered. And so uh, I've got I've got a uh, membership program. Um, I I say it's like kind of like Netflix for financial education. Um, and so I'm constantly putting new courses on there. Um, and you know, members just get get all of the new courses on there. Kind of like if you have Netflix, you get all the new movies that come in there. Um, and some of them are you know one hour long. Some of them are uh, you know like master classes, like huge. Um, and it's all just teaching you the, the nitty gritty, the tactics. Okay. Like here are the exact steps, what to do with your retirement account or the proper way to get out of debt or portfolio allocation, like proper hedging, advanced options, strategies, fundamental analysis. And so I think it's uh, starting with the top down. And then when you get ready to take action, it's like, okay, now I need to understand how to do this from a bottom up perspective. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of been my approach so far. Yeah, it's interesting because when you talk to people about investing and portfolio allocation, the general consensus is you can't time the market dollar cost average into the S&P 500 and you're probably going to do as well as you're going to do. But then you hear from other people, you know, you can sort of feel these macro headwinds or tailwinds coming in and you can adjust your portfolio accordingly. And I know one of your courses is Bear Market Investing Guide. So I mean, if you believe you're in a bear market, there is some aspect of timing there because you're you're going to build your portfolio in a way that benefits from a bear market as opposed to a bull rather than just dumping money in the same place. So I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on bear market investing, bull market investing, and how you can't really time, but it does matter. You do need to pay attention, I think. Yeah, as the old saying goes, people make money in uh, bull markets, but people make fortunes during the bear markets. Um, and uh, the reason for that is because it's not really about uh, the sale price. Um, it's mostly about the buy price. Uh, because if you buy something for the right price, then um, then you have the margin of safety built in. You know you've gotten it at a discount to its true value. And then it's just a matter of patience, matter of time. Uh, before everybody else realizes the the true value, uh, and so really that's that that's a fundamental that's the foundation of bear market investing. It's this is the opportunity to buy world class assets at uh, fear prices at uh, blood in the streets prices, um, and so uh, it's very different than what we've had for the last you know twenty years, where the common advice has just been. Um, everything just always goes up. So just throw money at everything all the time. And uh, you'll kind of get a good deal because of dollar cost averaging. And ultimately, when you're older, it'll be worth more. Um, the, the, the deceptive nature of that advice is that it's still timing the market. Uh, because that advice never acknowledges that bear markets happen. But even in the course of the last 40 years, bear markets have happened. Recessions have happened. Market crashes have happened. And then it takes time to recover. So the idea that you can just throw money into everything all at once, and then at the exact moment you need it, it's going to be worth a lot more is not necessarily true. You might need it. In fact, you're more likely to need it when it's worth less because during the bear markets of the crashes, the recessions are maybe when you lose your job or maybe when you get, uh, maybe you've, you've just retired and now you need to access more of, uh, of your savings now that everything is uh, falling apart instead of uh, less of it. So there's, uh, there's kind of the, this implied timing the market that is you know papered over in that advice. And so the idea is instead of just uh, 
instead of just blindly throwing money at everything, which is not investing, that's really just uh, speculating. Um, it's taking an approach of looking well into your investments and making sure that you're buying something that is going to cash flow, is going to uh, increase in value to the best of your knowledge, because you can't control these public assets. Um, but you're by, you're doing fundamental analysis, just very basic stuff that anybody can do. You don't have to be Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, uh, just very basic fundamental analysis to say, okay, yes, there is a high degree of certainty that I'm buying this at a price right now that is lower than its true value. Now, Ray Dalio makes a point about this. And he says, in order to make money investing, you have to bet against the consensus and be right. And so it's very difficult uh, from a numbers game, like from just like, you know, the average person, it seems like a, like an insurmountable obstacle to be able to do this because you're, you're betting, it seems like you're betting against uh, the consensus aggregate knowledge of every single market participant out there. So how in the world could you be right and they be wrong? But the reality is some stocks go up every day and they will for the next 20 years and some stocks go, will go down for the next 20 years. And so, um, on average, most of the market is going to be wrong most of the time, because the the uh, the the only way for the market to be correct right now about that asset that you're considering is if the price of that asset never moves from here, because that's the that's the consensus, that's the current value. Um, and so if you just apply a little bit of fundamental analysis and you say, okay, I think it's actually worth more, then the question is, well, why are people selling it at this price? And there could be a whole host of reasons why. Um, for instance, let's say you've got a big company and they spin off a smaller company. Companies do spinoffs all the time. So you've got, um, in, in case every, anybody's not aware what a spinoff is, you've got a large company, say, um, I don't know. AT&T does a lot of spinoffs and mergers and acquisitions. I can't think of one off the top of my head right now, but spinoffs happen all the time. So you've got a main company that does, you know, software for, you know, they've got a CRM basically uh, for, uh, for businesses and that's their main business. But somewhere along the way, they also had another product that um, was, you know, somewhat similar to their CRM, but eventually gets to the point where they just want to focus on this. They've got, it's gotten too big. And they've got two parts of their business that don't really fit together that well. Um, so the second part of their business might be, um, I don't know, a uh, you know the marketing um, for, that they do for businesses. So they've got a marketing agency. So they spin that off. So they just it, it, they separate the two companies, and now there's two different companies because now you have the ability to have uh, this separate company has its own CEO, its own board, its own you know everything. The management is aligned properly with the incentives. Um, the, they're they're not worried about what the CRM does. Uh, they're running their own business, and everything is more streamlined that way. But this is a much smaller company. Um, and so you may have 80% of mutual funds out there that only invest in the S&P 500. Your original company, the CRM company, is still part of the S&P 500 because of the size and because of whatever. The new company that just got spun off is no longer part of the S&P 500 because it's you know much smaller, whatever. So 80% of mutual funds out there are going to have to sell this new stock. They got it. They got the shares because they owned the original company. Separates into two. They have this original company. They all have to sell it. Not because they don't think it's going to go up. Not because they think it's a bad company. Not because of any fundamental reasons. Just because they only invest in these companies. Now this new company is no longer part of that. So they all sell this company. That means the value 
for a certain amount of time for that company, it will be priced lower than its actual value because you have major big money dumping it for no value reasons, just because they can't hold it. Um, and that selling pressure alone may be enough to make it uh, sell at a price that is below its intrinsic value. So if all you have is the ability to calculate you know, the basic intrinsic value of a company, then you can get a list of a thousand companies right now um, especially right now, but um, where you know the markets have been under pressure for a while, that say, hey, these uh, these uh, companies are selling at less than their intrinsic value. Then you have to apply some basic logic and common sense and say, okay, well, um, just because it's selling below its intrinsic value doesn't mean it's going to you know going to recover in the future or going to be you know a good company in the future, make a lot of money, whatever. So you have to apply something beyond just that, which uh, you know uh, maybe. Um, you know, there's there's a number of factors that we could go into, but um, essentially, you can come, you can narrow down your list and say, okay, these are the top five companies. Uh, after I do just a little bit of work, that I am fairly confident I'm buying them below their intrinsic value, and I'm fairly confident that they're going to do very well in the future. Meaning that if I buy it right now, I've got a huge margin of safety, and it should go up in value. Um, that is actual investing versus just throwing dollars into an index and you have no no idea, no control over what you're investing in. And then if something crashes, everybody sells the same companies all at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I've been doing this long enough myself to see this happen a couple of times as well. And one specific example that I can think of is when uh, Elon Musk went on Joe Rogan and he was smoking pot with him. And I remember the next day the stock tanked and I'm like, yeah. in my head, I'm like, this has nothing to do with Tesla. This has nothing to do with Musk mentality. Like he was just on the show, decided to have a toke of a doobie. And now the stock's down. It was down like a ton. I can't remember how much, but 20, 30%. Mm -hmm. And I didn't buy it then because I thought Tesla was overpriced and I still believe that it is. But regardless, I missed that opportunity. And I think it was like $140 pre-split at that time. And one thing that that makes me think of is, do you think that the most opportunity can be found in like specific companies with certain, you know, catalysts that happen, like the, the must thing or the spinoff thing? Or do you think that opportunities can be found from like systemic bear market where everything is just pushed down beyond belief and nobody wants to invest and is too scared? That's a great question. Um, I, it, it can be either one. Right now, most of the opportunities are going to be in specific companies. If you look at the price to earnings ratio of the S&P 500, it's still like crazy overvalued. So you're not, NASDAQ as well, you're not going to be able to get um, get that uh, value in, you know, the major indices um, right now. There may be smaller um, uh, indices that you could find value in. Like for instance, the S&P 500 to commodities ratio is at like a, a bottom. So when you measure the value of the S&P 500 versus a, a basket of commodities, there's kind of like a, a, a cyclical nature to it. And um, uh, it looks like over the last like two years, we've kind of bottomed um, the, uh, with that relationship. So it looks like commodities relative to the S&P 500 are about to become a lot more valuable. Um, and then so when you look at, you know, something like that, you can say, oh, well, I don't know the first thing about valuing commodity companies. Should I go for miners? Should I go for refiners? Should I go for, you know, what, what kind of companies, what kind of commodities even? Are we talking lithium? Are we talking copper? Are we talking gold? Are we talking uranium? Like, 
I don't know the first thing about that. So maybe that's an opportunity to say, okay, I think this overall area is primed to do well. Um, you could even do, but you know, based off of that, instead of just uh, you know buying uh, you know a commodity ETF, um, you could finance that with a short on the S and P five hundred. Uh, you'd want to make sure you're managing your risk. Uh, you know, appropriately for that, so that if that spread widens, that you you know are uh, are not at risk for that. Um, but that'd be a way that you could finance that trade, so that basically you have close to an infinite return on that trade. If you short the S P five hundred to buy commodities, use that use the money you got from the short, then you're 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 benefiting on the the relative squeeze. So even if both go up or both go down, they uh, they don't go down or up as fast as the other one. You're just betting on the relationship between them uh, getting tighter or reversing. Um, so there are uh, there are a lot of ways to play this um, that you don't necessarily have to go into looking at the balance sheets of individual companies. But for the most part right now, I think that's where most of the uh, um, the opportunity lies. Um, unless you're finding those uh, um, those you know sector specific, industry specific relationships that you know this this whole area looks very undervalued right now. Yeah, and I think a sort of a consensus view is that when we're in a systemic bear, it's a good time to invest. But what what I've noticed, like not necessarily the best time, but it's a good time to look for value, is what I should say, because you don't want to catch a falling knife either. Um, but what I've noticed just as my investing career has moved forward is that in the bear market is when I have the least money. So, you know, it's a, it's, we're kind of in a position now where it's a little easier to save cash because you're going to get, you know, 5% on your cash. But one thing I, I thought I would bring up is how to allocate your money in a way that provides you the ability to capitalize on those opportunities when you see them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is something that I uh, teach in the portfolio allocation course inside my membership program. But basically, you want to have your money spread out um, uh, and not all con like it. Most people have most of their investments just in the S&P 500. And um, then they get into a situation where it's like, OK, well, right now I would really like to invest in this, but that means I have to sell this other thing at a loss. Um, and so the idea is, and this is not something I made up, it's just, you know, a couple, couple things from, you know, very old portfolio allocation pieces of wisdom that I kind of pieced together. Um, in general, the overall allocation that you want to have is about one third of your money in business, about one third of your money in real estate, and about one third of your money in reserves. So the business portion, that's going to be stocks. And so the more you can get into, uh, you know, uh, reading balance sheets, fundamental analysis, technical analysis, looking at different industries and sectors and being very intentional about how you invest that money in the business portion, the better you're going to do. Um, that can be your own business as well. Uh, many times you're going to have the most potential for, you know, growth. You're never going to get a 100% return in one year investing in, you know, the SP 500 or the NASDAQ or the Dow. But you could absolutely get 100%, 200%, 300% return if you start your own business. So business is where you get the major capital gains uh, from your portfolio. Um, the next uh, section of your portfolio, one third of it is going to be real estate. And the reason why is because this is an asset class that has existed for all of history for good reason. 
uh, it's a scarce resource, something that everybody always wants uh, for all of human history. And um, especially in the United States, this is something that is uh, very tax advantaged. Uh, there are many tax advantages that are only available to investing in real estate uh, that make investing in real estate in the United States uh, much more beneficial asset class. Um, there are also uh, debt advantages to it. So the uh, United States is one of the only countries or maybe the only country where you can get a 30-year fixed rate mortgage on uh, on a house. It's like most places in the world that doesn't exist. Um, and that makes it very advantageous. It's basically a vehicle to short the dollar. Um, if you can get debt underneath the rate of inflation, then you're shorting the dollar by buying real estate with mortgage. Um, and so there's uh, uh, there's opportunities there with real estate, um, and some of them are better depending on where you're investing. Uh, and then uh, the last piece is going to be reserves. And this is the kind of the key that most people don't uh, um, uh, don't have enough in reserves, in my opinion. So when you measure, there's this there's this book called, um, oh, shoot. Uh, I have it, I think, on my shelf somewhere. It's, oh, Safe Haven by Mark Spitznagel. Um, and so he talks about uh, um, this, the idea to have, if you can, uh, for the appropriate price, if you can mitigate your downside risk, then you maximize your long-term gains. Um, and uh, it goes against conventional financial thinking because they say, okay, uh, 99 times out of 100, if you put everything into the S&P 500, every time you make your paycheck all year long, then you're going to have the most at the end of your life. But one out of every 100 times, something crazy is going to happen to the stock market, and you're going to be broke. And mathematically, then you would say, okay, well, then you should just do the thing where you're better off 99% of the time. But the reality is we only get to live life one time. We don't get to replay it over and over and over again and then choose the best outcome. And so in reality, we actually have to hedge against that 1% because if that happens to us, we're ruined and you can't come back from it. So it doesn't matter what would have happened the other 99 times. You have to protect that worst case downside scenario. So that's the idea behind life insurance, right? 99 times out of 100, I'm not going to get in a car crash and die. But if I do, my family is ruined unless I have life insurance. So I pay the 50 bucks a month, the hundred bucks a month, the 200 bucks a month, whatever it is to have that life insurance. And the, the crazy part is that that $200 a month is technically a cost to me. But in the event that I need it, it's a massive net benefit. And so when you, uh, when you apply this to investing and you say, I'm going to incur a cost on purpose so that if something crazy happens, I'm not negatively affected then that actually uh, increases your, or it maximizes, I should say, your uh, long-term wealth in the end. So that's what reserves does for your investing portfolio. Because if you think about a, a stock market, a stock investment, whatever your business, um, it might go up 10%, might go down 20%, might go up 30%, whatever. So it might have some crazy good years, crazy bad years, might have years where it does nothing. Um, if it goes down, let's you're, you're at, you're at uh, $100,000 and you go down by 20%, you're at uh, $80,000 now. But what do you need to get back up to where you were last year? If you just go up 20% from 80,000, now you're only at 96,000 because it's a percent off a lower base. And so you need now, instead of a 20% recovery, you need a 25% uh, 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 recovery just to get back to break even. 
So 20% down equals 25% up. Um, and so uh, what that reserves portion allows you to do is not feel the brunt of those downside moves. Because if you have a third of your money in, in reserves and then your asset basket takes a 20% hit, you can refill it. Now you're back up to 100% and you're going to have recovery at some point, but you're recovering off of the full amount again. And so this is the difference between, for the math geeks out there, arithmetic returns versus geometric returns. If you have a classroom and you uh, have, you know, some pers one person gets 90%, 95%, 60%, 55%, 95%, 89%, the average class uh, score is going to be, let's say, 89%. That's an arithmetic average. That doesn't work that way in investing. Um, in investing, you have to use geometric average returns, which is also called uh, CAGR, compounded annual growth rate. And it's where each year's returns are the, are the output is the input for the next year. Because if you go down by 20%, then up by 20%, you're starting from 80, you're not starting back from 100. And so when you look at the average annual growth rate of the S&P 500, they're just taking the arithmetic return and they're gonna say, okay, over the last 20 years, it averaged 9%. But if you put 10,000 in 20 years ago, and then do that, uh, say I grow by 9% uh, every single year, you're actually gonna come up with a number that's far larger than uh, what reality would have given you because the arithmetic return is incorrect for investing. It doesn't account for the fact that every time you go up or down, that's the next input for the next year. Um, so the, that's a long way of, uh, of explaining why the reserves portion is so important, but it's because it allows you to refill to zero uh, or to back up to where you started from so that when you have that recovery, you're not recovering from a much lower base. You're recovering from back at where you started. So you never have to take the brunt of that, uh, uh, of that hit. It allows you to hedge against those downside risks. Um, and then you actually do uh, get the arithmetic returns um, rather than the uh, geometric returns because you're refilling it with, uh, with your reserves. Um, if all that didn't make sense, the only thing that matters is having ample savings means you can buy when stuff goes on sale. <laughs> and you don't have to worry that you know your stuff went down you have you have some cash now i have some opinions about what that cash should be and i think five percent uh in bitcoin i think 20 percent in gold five percent in cash um and uh so i i have some ideas of how that savings part i don't think it should all be in cash because inflation is going to eat you alive um but uh those are vehicles that store value those are those act as reserves act as savings um and the, just the dollar by itself is not the only vehicle and it's by far from the best vehicle to uh to have in reserves to have for your savings yeah and that totally makes sense to me and i've never heard the you know one third in each area argument before but it makes sense and it's funny because in my own personal finance i've been considering you know different business ideas and and things and i was like well, how am i going to fund this and i was kind of like well maybe i'll just sell some stocks and i'm like well i don't want to sell my investments but you know based on what you've just said it's the same same bucket so it would make sense if you have a business idea you could sell some stocks and use that to fund it and just kind of see what happens because you can you know why not bet on yourself as opposed to bet on somebody else mm -hmm. and i think that i think that that's a that's a great way to look at it is you know a third business third real estate third reserves and just based on that um 
that's kind of, that argument kind of goes both ways because you can lose out on the compounding opportunity cost when you have the reserves. So this is something that I battle with fairly often because I'm like, if I hold all this cash, you know, the opportunity cost that I could lose and the compounding gains and like, you know, the S&P or whatever is a challenge sometimes to think about. But at the same time, if it goes down, then you don't lose as much. So, you know, I think that's a, it's a good way to just kind of hold your base. And then would you say that if, if you have, you know, one third, one third, one third, do you rebalance annually or do you do this like semi-annually? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think a, 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 a standard quarterly rebalance is perfectly appropriate. Um, unless something crazy happens where you become, you know, extremely out of whack. And so, especially if we look at like, you know, 2020 and 2021, when there were just crazy things happening in, uh, in the markets, there were absolutely opportunities where you would look at that and you just have to use some, you know, some experience and some wisdom and just say, you know what, now is the time to rebalance. Um, an example of this is August... Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to get the date wrong here, but it was, there was a, a crazy day in, I think August of 2020. Um, okay. I've got it up here. It was oh September, September 2nd in 2020. Anybody, you know, pull up a, a chart of the S and P 500 on uh, September 2nd of 2020. Um, and I remember watching the market that day. And this was like in the height of the euphoria after the printing had started interest rates had been lowered. Like this was in the, in the heart of like, you know, uh, NFTs were starting to go crazy. And like, this was, this was the FOMO. This was the euphoria. This was Davy day trader. The, uh, Dave Portnoy, um, was getting into day trading. Uh, this was, um, you know, there, there's just, a, everybody was from home day trading, wasn't working. They were getting paid, you know, you know, by the government to not work. This was like peak euphoria right here. And that day, followed a consecutive like uh, two months straight of the market going up every day. And uh, it had just blown through the prior all-time high right before uh, COVID started, um, like two weeks before that. It was uh, end of August, 2020, when it finally broke through that high. And for like 10 days straight, it just popped, popped, popped. And then on that September 2nd, it was insane. I don't remember what the exact percentage was, but um, it was it was a huge pop, um, and everybody's portfolios, you know, were were leveraged at that point, um, and everybody was posting their gains like you know crazy crazy gains. Like I made you know uh, you know two hundred percent just today on my entire portfolio, like just insane stuff that people were putting up online. And over the next one, two, three trading days, the stock market fell. Um, uh, what was it? It was, you know, it was 7%. It was a little over 7% in the next three trading days from there. And then after that, it came out while everybody was leveraged, everybody was piling in, everybody was buying call options. And the way that market makers uh, uh, pair trades with options is you take somebody who wants to buy something, you take somebody who wants to sell that same thing and you match them together and take the, take the middleman cut. But if everybody's buying calls, there's nobody selling those calls to match them up to. So the market makers have to take the other side of that trade. But the market makers are not in the business of maintaining a book. Market makers are in the business of being a middleman and taking the cut. 
And so they don't want to have price exposure to the upside or to the downside. That's not their game. So what they have to do is they have to then hedge since they have to be the other side of that trade and sell those calls. They don't want to be exposed. So in order to hedge their exposure to those calls that they sold, they have to turn around, they have to buy the stocks and they buy just enough of them so that their delta is neutral. So that if the calls are losing the money, then their stocks are gaining the money to the exact same amount. Because again, they're not price exposed, they're neutral. They're just taking that cut from the trade. And so everybody buying calls for the last week was making all the market makers have to turn around and buy stocks. So all of this options trading volume was driving stocks through the roof. Um, and then obviously that's a bubble. At some point, the trades stop or slow down. And that means the trade starts to unwind because they don't need to hedge as much anymore. So they take some of their hedges off. Some of the options expire. Now, since things stop going up so fast, now everybody starts to sell and things start to go down really fast. Um, and so that in the hindsight, everybody said, oh yeah, you, we should have sold, but nobody did because there's euphoria. So this is where some self-awareness comes in that, yeah, rebalance every, you know, once a quarter. If you really don't like rebalancing, do it once a year. That's you'll still be, you know, you'll still probably be fine. Quarterly rebalancing is the standard because it's it's typically uh, you know the sweet spot. Um, but sometimes you're going to have massive fear, and you need to be aware of that and act on that. Buy when there's blood in the streets. Other times you're going to have massive euphoria, and when you're checking your account seven times an hour and thinking to yourself, "I'm going to buy this. I'm going to be so rich. I can quit my job. Like I feel so great." That's a sign of euphoria. And you need to sell and you need to, uh, you know, rebalance the other way. Um, and so it does take some self-awareness, but uh, for the most part, quarterly rebalancing will work. Yeah, I feel like I've learned a lot in the last, let's say, 10 years. Just to see a euphoria followed by a fear cycle and low inflation right into high inflation, there's been a lot going on. And it's provided a lot of lessons for me personally, for sure. And I think that one of the ways that we can sort of deal with that opportunity cost of a stock market going up is seeing what happens when it goes down, like we've seen the last couple of years. And also now we're getting higher interest rates on cash. And, you know, like, as you say, the, there is, uh, I'm a commodity guy myself. So there's, there's a lot of people out there talking about a commodity super cycle. Whether that's going to happen, I don't know, but I would definitely feel comfortable with putting some of my reserves in gold or silver or, or what, what have you. Um, what One thing I wanted to touch on there with the side business sort of deal, because I know you talk a lot about personal finance as well. And just, just moving into that, I like, for example, a couple of your CODs are, you know, marriage, why that's important and like how to get out of debt. I just kind of wanted to ask you just cause I'm slowly building my channel as well, how the experience with YouTube has gone and what are some of the major lessons that, that you've learned for your finances or for yourself just in that process? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a lot, actually, this is something that, uh, I've been slowly trying to piece together, putting, starting to put content out about this because it's been so, uh, you know, I, I made so many mistakes learned so much. And then the proper execution has been so beneficial that I think, uh, I, I think there's, there's a lot of people standing on the sidelines, um, sitting in the arena, um, wishing they could get in the ring and fight, thinking that uh, they don't stand a chance um, and fear stops them. And one of the uh, guarantees in life is that if you don't do something out of fear of failure, 
you are guaranteeing yourself to failure, ironically, because you can't uh, you can't succeed if you don't try. Um, and uh, so I I when I quit my job I I did it I I, I say I did it the wrong way because um, I I didn't try and start anything first and then once I had something rolling then jump on it. Um, I I was in an industry that said no you can absolutely not do anything outside unless you get prior approval. And if it has anything to do with our industry at all, the automatic answer is going to be no. Um, and so, uh, and so because of that, I said, you know, I convinced myself that I could never start anything while I was, while I was there in hindsight, I should have. And then if they found out about it, then I would have gotten fired. And then I would have been in the exact same situation I chose to be in. Um, and so I, I should have done that, but knowing myself, I'm more of a all in, uh, or nothing, uh, go big or go home, uh, type of, uh, type personality. So, uh, I quit and I just started throwing spaghetti at the wall. I tried to self-publish books, started a blog, started a podcast, started a YouTube channel, um, did, uh, consulting one-on-one, -on -one, um, for, you know, personal money management type stuff. Um, and I uh, just, you know, tried to do everything that I could possibly think of. Um, and then my YouTube channel was the one that took off first. Um, and so I went all in on that. Uh, the reality is, though, that was extremely difficult. Uh, I, you know, they talk about, you know, the entrepreneur doesn't want to work 40 hours a week for somebody else. And so they work 80 hours a week for themselves. Uh, and that was absolutely true. It's like you're. I I I, the, I, <laughs> I say it's like being dropped off in the middle of a rainforest with a machete and somebody tells you, get to the road. And that's it. So you just have to start chopping and going. Number one, the chopping and walking is hard, very hard. But number two, you have no idea if you're going the right direction. Like you have, you have no bearing. In a job, it's like, do this, 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 and this, and then you'll have this outcome. It's very predictable. Um, and so it's very easy to succeed as long as you just do what people are telling you to do. But when you're doing something for yourself, there's nobody telling you what to do. And so it's like, I'm just going to start chopping and hope, it, hope that I'm going in the right direction. And you're going to run into a cliff that's, you know, a thousand feet high. And you're going to realize, well, I've been chopping in the wrong direction this entire time. So I have to turn around and start chopping in a different direction. Um, and, uh, that's, that's what I, uh, th that was my experience of, <laughs> of, uh, trying to, uh, trying to start something, um, you know, for myself, I had the overall goal of, I wanted to teach people how money worked, um, but no idea how I was going to turn that into any sort of income. Um, and so I had, uh, um, I had a I had a good amount of runway from savings because I, you know, it was a, it was a high paying job that I was in. Um, but uh, it was, it was a, it was six months of zero income from, you know, all the stuff that I was trying. And it was a year and a half until I had enough to pay, uh, pay my bills. Um, and then it was a very short time after that until I made way more than I had ever made before. Um, and now it's like, you know, more every month than I made before. So it's, uh, it's, it's a hockey stick journey as long as you as long as you continue to learn from your mistakes. Now, specifically, some of the things that uh, uh, that I did that I think uh, that I think contribute to success and are broadly applicable is um, I repeated the thing that started to work 
So when I when I realized my, that YouTube was going to be the thing that I was going to go all in on, which I think I should have done that much earlier, uh, but uh, I I increased the volume dramatically. So I was making like two videos on YouTube every week. Um, I made ended up making one video. It was December of 2019 um, on the uh, repo market. Uh, because the repo market had kind of blown up in September, and then it looked like in December it was going to kind of happen again. Um, and it would have if other people, not me, but if other people hadn't brought enough awareness to it, it would have caused some major problems. And so I made a video explaining it and um, explaining what was going on because it was a relatively new concept at the time. Not a lot of people had been learning about the repo market. And, um, and so I have, you know, one of my skills is to be able to take something complex, learn about it, and then explain it in a way that's, you know, much simpler. And so I did that. And that's what got me to a thousand subscribers. And that was in reality, that doesn't change anything other than you can flip on the, the monetization box on YouTube, but it doesn't pay you anything at the beginning. It's just, you know, it's like, there's it like a couple cents. Um, so it was just a mental motivation thing. And so that when that happened, the thousand subscriber mark, that's what made me say, okay, I'm going to go all in on this. Um, and uh, the second, there was another thing, a second thing that um, that was a mental motivation thing. I got my first sale from one of my online courses. Um, and so that was like my first dollar of internet money that I had ever made. Um, and again, it wasn't enough to, you know, pay the bills or anything, but it was enough for that mental motivation. So I said, okay, I'm going to go all in on this. And instantly I went up to one video every single day. Um, and, uh, in retrospect, uh, focusing on quantity in the beginning over quality is the most important thing that anybody can, uh, can do, um, in their entrepreneurial journey or in their skill acquisition journey, their job journey, whatever. Um, because you, you will, uh, you will get better far faster if you focus on quantity over quality. Number one, quantity or quality, I'm sorry, quality is subjective. You think you know what's good, but what you think is good is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what the customer thinks is good because that's what they'll buy or watch or pay attention to or whatever your product is. So the only thing that matters is what the customer wants, what the client wants, what your audience wants. And if that's the case, they want something and that's what true quality is. You don't know what that is. You have to try out a million things until you figure out what that is. And your audience is going to be different than every other person's audience. And you know that because you've watched a hundred different YouTube channels, maybe a thousand different YouTube channels. You've listened to, you know, hundreds of podcasts. You've read dozens to hundreds of books and they're all wildly different. And some people love these things and some people love these things and they're extremely different from each other. So you have to figure out what your audience wants from you, what your customers want from you. And the only way to do that is repetition. The only way to do that is try out as many things as possible. And by accident, you'll hit something that they like. And then you double down on it and you start doing more of what gets those results and you focus more in from there on what works. The second reason to focus on quality, quantity over quality is because um, you can't get better at something without practice. The only way to get better, is, there's a common saying that uh, 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 practice makes perfect. That's not entirely true. Um, because if you do something badly over and over again um, and never attempt to improve it, then you'll just do something badly forever. Um, and so there has to be that intentional effort to improve it, but it doesn't have to be a lot. Any small amount percentage-wise that you're improving something 
as long as you have the repetitions there, eventually you'll become the best in the world at it. Uh, it's it's just a matter of it's compounding interest. That's it. It works for investing and it works for skills. Um, and so the only way to get better at something is to uh, is to do it over and over and over and over and over again and try and get a little, little, little tiny bit better each time. Um, and uh, and so pairing both of those things together means quantity is way more important than quality. And if you focus on quantity, eventually you'll have qu quality. Um, and uh, And so... That was uh, that was the first realization for me. The second realization for me was that uh, I needed to build an audience um, uh, uh, before uh, before I built a, a a business. So this is I think this is probably contrary to what like literally everybody else will say out there. So take it with a grain of salt. This was this worked for me. Um, most people um, that I know, most of my friends in this space, um, they have a business and then they start content to drive people to the business. Um, and that's, that's fine. That works. Um, for me, I quit my job. I started a business and then I opened, I looked up from my desk after I spent weeks, months trying to build this thing. And I realized I have nobody to sell this to. And so you can build the best product in the world, but you have to have marketing to go along with it. You have to have somebody to sell it to. You have to have leads. And so for me, I realized, you know, the best way for me to be able to do that is through YouTube, but it can be any acquisition channel. It doesn't have to be YouTube. It can be social media. It can be paid ads. It can be anything. Um, and so I said, okay, well, I need to start getting, getting that attention, uh, getting those eyeballs on me. So then that became my focus for the next like year and a half. And after a year and a half, um, then I started saying, okay, I'm going to start to try and monetize this and, and funnel that attention into, uh, into a way to make money. Um, now at my, at this point, this is why, like, when you ask somebody, like, let's say if you wanted to go on vacation, it would be kind of uh, uh, ridiculous to ask people who are on vacation what their lifestyle is like on vacation and then mimic that. It's like, if you want to go on vacation, the way to do that is not to lay by a pool and drink a beer. That's what you do once you're on vacation. That's not what you do to get to the vacation. In order to go on vacation, maybe you have to get in the car and drive somewhere. You have to pack. You have to get a plane flight. You have to fly somewhere. You have to book a hotel. And then you can be on vacation. So what gets you somewhere is not the same thing that you do once you're there. And so now, once you kind of get to uh, this point, I've kind of reversed and I've said, okay, now I know what quality is. So I'm going to quadruple down on that. and I'm not going to be focusing on quantity as much anymore. Um, now I have the attention and the eyeballs. So now I'm going to be funneling that towards a, uh, towards a business. Um, and so uh, that's the process that uh, that I went through and kind of how I changed along the way. Um, but uh, if I were to go back and uh, do it differently, it would be to do those same things faster and earlier. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Thanks for that. Really appreciate your insight on that. And one thing I've noticed for me, just working through this, um, like I don't have a ton of followers, a ton of viewers, but just the process that I've gone through has really enlighten me in a way that I can look at other businesses and I can, I can see what they're doing right a little bit easier. Have you found that with yourself that building your own brand and your own business now and, and seeing what you had to do when you look at an investment opportunity in the market or, or otherwise, do you feel like 
you understand it a little bit better and the work that's gone into what they're doing? Um, yeah, a a absolutely. Uh, if I understand your your question correctly, I think I, I think the uh, one of the most one of the biggest failures of like the modern education system is that it teaches people to um, memorize and uh, work alone. Uh, like like if you if 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 two people work on the same test together uh, in school, that's considered cheating. Uh, but in life, if you don't collaborate with, like in life, nobody has the entire set of skills that you need to achieve big success. And so when you can pair up with the right person who has the missing pieces, like they know answers, you know answers, and they're different answers. Like if you could work on a test together, you guys would ace it. If you work separately, you both get a 50%. Um, in school, that'd be cheating. In life, that sets you up for success. That's when you win. Um, and so uh, absolutely, if you take a look at what the people are doing who are succeeding, and then you try and copy that, and not in a plagiarism way, but in a way of like, okay, um, like, for instance, like a good example of this is like uh, uh, thumbnails on YouTube. Um, there are, I don't know, countless YouTube channels out there, and very few of them have had the success that a channel like Mr. Beast has had. Um one of the reasons why he's successful is because he takes uh, for for the, the 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 starting point to a video for him is his thumbnails. So he thinks about what is what is a thumbnail that will grab people's attention, and then can I make a video about that? And he's filmed entire videos that have cost him you know a million dollars or something like that, uh, where uh, he can't figure out a good thumbnail for it. And so it's scrapped. He won't release the video because he can't figure out a good thumbnail for it. Um, and so it's completely backwards to 99.9% .9 of the uh, other people on YouTube do, which is I'm going to make a video that I think, you know, is a good video to make. And then I'm just going to do whatever thumbnail I can do for it. Um, it's completely backwards. But from the perspective of um, the consumer, the customer, the audience, um, he knows that that like the psychology of I see something and then I want to know more about that is where it all starts. So that's where he has to start as well. Um, and I, I noticed my click-through rates uh, increased a lot once I started to like think that way just a little bit, not entirely, but I tried to start incorporating that thought process. Like when I'm starting to think about, hey, what am I going to make a video about? I think of it first through the lens of the thumbnail. And if I can come up with a good thumbnail, then it's like, all right, then I'm gonna I'm gonna try and go forward with this uh, with this video, um, and not not to a you know the the whole extent that he does, but um, but it's uh, it's definitely helped. And so I think success does absolutely kind of like you know it has like breadcrumbs of clues on what you can do to kind of copy that. And again, not in a plagiarism way, but they're successful for a reason. So follow in their footsteps. Nobody, there's nothing that you're doing that hasn't been done before. So find the people who are most successful at it and try and learn from them and do what they do. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, um, with investments, look for companies that are doing similar things to other really solid companies, possibly when you're investing and for yourself, for your own business, maybe copy someone who's successful, even in your own area or, you know, in, in the whatever niche that you're going for, because it's a, it's a big world out there and there's a lot of room for sure. So definitely appreciate that advice.
Um, it, what one one more real quick thing about that since sure. you're since yeah. you it sounded like I guess the question was more directed towards investing this is that's absolutely 100 true there are dozens if not hundreds of books out there from the best investors in history one series that I would recommend is Market Wizards by Jack Schwager 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 um, and he has like six of these books five of these books that he's written over the last like 30 40 years where he goes and he interviews the best traders and investors of history so there's hedge fund market wizards there's unknown market wizards there's new market wizards there's a bunch of these and um, if you read like three of these books you'll notice every single one of the best investors and traders that he's interviewed they all have the same number one rule and they all state it a little bit differently but from Warren Buffett to Peter Brandt to uh, uh, Ray Dalio to like literally all of them, their number one rule, all of them is don't lose money. It's risk management. It's make sure you're investing in a way where you know it's not going to go down, whether that's through hedging, whether that's through stops, whether that's through margin of safety, whatever the way you implement that, those are all different. But their number one rule is make sure you don't lose money. So if that's what all the best ones are doing, that's what I need to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's why I emphasize the reserves a lot and the hedging a lot, because we want to cover our downside. And if you cover your downside, the wins will happen. But the small wins and the small losses will cancel each other out. So, and, and you'll have big wins and you'll have big losses. So if the only thing you do is get rid of those big losses, don't let those happen, then you'll have big wins that'll drive your overall performance. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I, I like the, um, just going back to what you said real quick with the quantity over quality at the start kind of thing. I don't know if you're a, and uh, I don't know if you're a UFC fan, but I just watched a fight last weekend and the one guy came out and they said, this guy doesn't hit pads. All he does is spars. So hmm. he, uh, he, he literally fights to fight. So it, all he does to practice is, is fight. And he went in and knocked the guy out. And I was like, you know, he's, he's not undefeated, but it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing. You know, you got to get the reps in, you got to get the experience and you, you know, as you say, you're going to fail if you don't start. So you might as well start and get at it and see what works and what doesn't. So yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's great advice. Um, but yeah, with that said, I want to give you an opportunity if anybody's interested uh, where they can find your your content, obviously YouTube, but anywhere else they want to look. Yeah, absolutely. So all the free stuff is on YouTube. I post a video four times a week now. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter as well. Pretty active on there. If you want to go deeper into, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we covered on this uh, on this show about the more like the tactics and the advanced investing. Um, I, that would be university.heresy.financial. Um, you can find it by going to uh, my YouTube videos. It's in the link of the descriptions. Um, but uh, university.heresy.financial will take you there. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.